0: Verses 1 through 12. We have a your bulletin if you'd like to follow on there. But of course, we've brought your Bible. We, I'd encourage you to follow along there as well. 2 Samuel 4, verses 1 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord for us this morning. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, his courage failed and all Israel was dismayed. Now, Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Bena. And the name of the other Rechab, son of Remon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth, for Beeroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Beeroth, Beerothites fled to Gatim and have been sojourners there to this day. And I wouldn't—I just can't stop. And say, wouldn't it be interesting to be, be, be either from Beersheba or Beeroth? I just just thought that'd be interesting. Verse four: Jonathan, the, Saul, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth excuse me. Now the sons of Rimmon, the Berethite, Rechab, and Banah set out. And about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Banah his brother, escaped. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of ish to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of ish the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord, the king this day, on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Banah, his brother, the sons of Rimen, the Berethite. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing me good news. I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed. Shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men and they killed him and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of ish and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. This is God's word. Let's pray as we consider it together. Father, help us to go beyond the gore and the violence. And help us, Lord, see clearly your hand at work in this passage. And Lord, please shorten the distance between us and, and them, culturally and, 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 and time-wise. And Lord, please take this passage and most of all, show us Jesus this morning. Show us him risen for us, him crucified for us, him uh, promising to come back a second time for us. Lord, have your way in, in your church with, the, in, with your word this morning, we pray in your son's name. Amen. Even just reading it out loud, I've read this passage out loud several times this week. It's just it's so um, violent and gory. We'll get to it in just a minute. We've skipped ahead a bit in this book. Uh, last, you, you weren't sleeping the last couple of Sundays. Uh, it was just last Sunday that Andy uh, preached on the first part of 2 Samuel chapter 2 uh, when Abner made Ishbosheth king. Ishbosheth was Saul's son. Um, and so what I want to do is just go briefly over the parts that I'm not preaching on, to, to kind of make sure you you're, you're kind of uh, so understanding the story and where we are in chapter four. So a, as Andy pointed out last week, Abner, who is Saul's kind of right hand man, is his his uh, his uh, 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 joint chiefs of staff in terms of like the the head the head general. He's the one who made Ishbosheth king. That's what it says in, in chapter two, verse nine. As Andy pointed out, it's a very kind of uh, fragile uh, kingship. When Abner is the one who makes him king. When it's the military that that rules, uh, it it usually doesn't last very long in terms of kingship. So after Ishbosheth is installed as king in the northern kingdoms, and remember David has been made king of Judah, which is in the south, Abner grabs a group of men in the the middle of chapter 2, and he looks for a fight with David's men, he finds one at Gibeon and David's men rout him. And Abner has to, has to uh, retreat. As Abner retreats away from David and his men who are led by a man named Joab, Joab's brother, Azahel, uh, is determined to get Abner. Abner instead, instead turns around and, and kills uh, Azahel in self-defense. Abner then sues for peace with Joab, and each general leads his men back to their home territories. Again, Abner goes to the north, and Joab goes to the south. And then chapter 3, verse 1, begins with this sentence. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. That's really a, a really good synopsis of, the, of these, these few chapters, dealing with Saul and his descendants after his, his death. In chapter 3, that goes on that when ish, ish when, uh, Ish-bosheth, uh, objects to uh, Abner's behavior, Abner decides he's going to switch sides. So instead of supporting ish Abner then goes makes, and makes a covenant with David, which infuriates Joab. Joab, of course, is kind of David's right-hand general. Uh, and I think he's thinking perhaps that Abner is going to take his, his job from him. Of course, Joab is still wants revenge, too, for the death of his brother at Abner's hands. And so Joab uh, winds up uh, trying to, uh, 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 invites counsel with Abner. And as he does so, he pretends to to want to talk to him privately. He then stabs him in the stomach. And so uh, David, when David finds out about this, he tries to stay above the fray. He mourns Abner and he invites Joab to do the same. And so, and so that's where we are in chapter four. Ishbosheth is still king over the northern kingdom, but his protector is gone. The man who put him in power is gone, and the Lord has never supported this. And so the Lord is gone. And so it's only a matter of time until something like this happens. So let's look at the let's uh, let's see how the text is broken up into four parts. And and hopefully we can get beyond the gore and the violence. And, and get to, we can see how the Lord is instructing us this morning. First, the fall of the house of Saul. It's verses one through four. Let me read that again for us. It says, When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed and all Israel was dismayed. Now, in chapter three, it said that when, when Abner, uh, when, when Abner uh, went against Ishbosheth, he was afraid, he feared Abner. Now that Abner was, is dead, he loses his courage, it says. And all Israel is dismayed. It's as if Israel is beholding their king's reaction and they see that he's, he's not a leader. He's not a strong man. He's not someone who's committed to the Lord. He is, they're dismayed by his cowardice. And so then we're introduced to these two men, uh, Baina and, Re, and, Re, and Rechab. They're really just tough guys. Okay, they're, they're brutes. They're the brute squad. If I could use that term from a princess bride, um, they're Benjamites, so they're, they come from the same tribe as Saul and Ishbosheth. Uh, they're captains of raiding parties. Um, but it's not clear why they have it out for Ishbosheth. We'll get to that in just a minute. And in verse 4, after the introductions of Rechab and, 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 uh, and, uh, and, and Banah, there's a note about, about a man named Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth easy for me to say. That was Jonathan's son. It's almost a note of grace. In the midst of all this gore, there's this story about this young man uh, who sadly has become, his, who's crippled. He, became, he fell when he was a young, young boy. But it shows that even after ish death, there's still someone left in the house of Saul. And in fact, David takes great pains later on in this book to take care of him. A really sweet, it's really a sweet way in which David continues to love his brother Jonathan by taking care of Jonathan's son. So there's a note of God's grace in the midst of all of this. But as Dale Ralph Davis points out in his commentary, there's a reason why there, these two brutes are introduced in this story uh, between ish who's impotent as a king, and Mephibosheth, who can't possibly become king because he can't physically lead the armies. It's as if these, these, uh, these, these two brutes are introduced between a, 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 a portraits of a powerless despot on one hand and a disabled prince on the other. And Dale Ralph Davis says this, whatever Bena and Rechab do then will hardly be heroic but in the class of a junior high ruffian who beats up on five-year-olds. That's what these two men are. I'm gonna comment more about this later, but let's, keep, let's continue to go through the text. Let's look at verses five through seven. I call it murder most foul. It says now the son of Rimmon, the sons of Rimmon, the beer, the Beerthite, Bir, Rechab and Bana set out. And about the heat of the day they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. It's siesta time. It's a siesta. But what I want to know is where is the security? This is the king of Israel. There's no one, no one to guard him. There's no one there to, to protect him. Verse six and they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat. And they stabbed him in the stomach. There seems to be a stomach stabbing uh, thing going on in these, in these chapters. It's the third time that happens. Then Rechab and Bana, his brother, escaped. And so in verse 6, there's kind of a, a sanitized state of version. He was, st- st- he was, he was struck in the stomach. Um, and then they escaped. But verse 7 gives us more detail. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. It says they took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night. And so verse 6 gives the sanitized version, and verse 7 gives the, the gory version, almost a version you'd see on The Sopranos. I mean, that's what, that's what it really feels like to me, those of you who've seen that show. Uh, it's, it's really like a mob hit. And again, it's not clear what their motivation is. Why would they want to do this to their own king? Why would they want to do this to a member of their own tribe? Ishbosheth is not going to hurt a fly. And we, we, we find out their motivations in verses 8 through 11. We see a beheading explained by theology. That is a strange term, but I'm going to say it again. A beheading explained by theology. Look with me in verse eight. It says they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. Imagine just the, the awfulness of what? What do you do with that? They traveled all night. How do they transport it? And they said to the king, "Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord, the, the, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring." And so the thugs stupidly bring Ishbosheth's head, thinking David's going to reward them. They should have talked to the Amalekite first, uh, from from Second Samuel chapter one. Uh, in terms of, of this, and, and notice how they how they, they really blame it on God. The Lord has avenged the Lord my the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. This is God's work. We're just doing God's work. We knew the, the Lord is going to bless David. We know Ishbosheth doesn't have a, a part in the future, so we just decided to help God out a little bit here and move it along. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis's commentary is really excellent, and he he talks about this here. He says there's no disputing the fact that is the idea the that uh, Ishbosheth is dead. I presume David knows whose head it is. The fact is one thing; the interpretation of another. Was this God's vengeance upon Saul and his seed? Were Rechab and Benad then, as they were implying, the servants of the Lord in executing His justice by eliminating David's rival and solidifying David's position? They were not claiming to be channels only, but channels surely. And therefore, ones to whom David owed the debt of, of posh government jobs. See, it's very similar to the Amalekite in Second Samuel 1. They come with blood on their hands, but theology on their lips, expecting that the latter will magically bleach the former. Murder always seems more pleasant when wrapped in religious considerations. He goes on to talk about how perhaps there are are times in our church, in in present day church, where theology is used to cover sin and folly. Uh, One example here, it says, uh, for them, theology is not truth that lures us to worship God, that's what good theology does, but technique that enables us to justify ourselves. We may recognize the bainas and rechabs of our day and the self-appointed defender of doctrinal, doctrinal, doctrinal precision who is eager to explain, correct, and inform with all harshness and severity. If accosted about his stringent style, he argues theologically. He's only concerned that we hold on to the whole counsel of God. The slightest indifference on doctrinal matters they may begin to, may, may begin to plunge to unbelief. Or suppose the church elders begin informal or formal discipline against an, erring and re, and, uh, against an erring church member. What will they hear? Theology. About how all of us are sinners, but God is compassionate certainly no more than, than church elders. And who gave you the right to assess my life anyway? We must be when we explain things theologically, we may simply be using God, using him as an argument, manipulating him for our conscience or for our convenience to keep from submitting to his grace or to his law. He came with, he came with blood on their hands and theology on their lips. They wanted the one to bleach the other. David's not buying it. Look what he says in verse nine. But David answered Rechab and Banah, his brother, the sons of Remen the Beirothite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. You can read about that in 2 Samuel 1. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his, own be- in his house on his bed? shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? David begins with testimony. He says, as the Lord lives, and surely God is a a living God. He says, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. Think about how many Psalms David has written at this point in his life. How many times do we read in 1 Samuel, when you read 1 Samuel? How many times is David in trouble? How many times is, is Saul almost killed him. How many times? Scores of times. And the other thing to think about is it's probably roughly about 25 years since David was anointed to be king over all Israel. He has waited and waited and waited and waited all this time, 25 years. How easy it would have been for David to say, thank you, taking, thanks for taking care of things. We'll just keep this on the down low between us. And I'll make sure and get you a a, a good job in the army. He doesn't do that. He says, the Lord lives. He's redeemed my life out of every adversity. I don't need your help. God especially doesn't need your help. And who are you to presume to be God? And then so you have awful justice in verse 12. David commanded his young men and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hang them beside the pool at Hebron. It's almost a picture out of a, Uh, an episode of The Handmaiden's Tale. It says, but they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. He got a proper burial. The others got, the others were killed and mutilated, and hung in public like bad laundry. So what do we do with this? (laughs) Let me, let me offer some thoughts in terms of application and, and, and kind of moving things along this morning. First, first thought is this, total depravity is not theoretical. Total depravity is not theoretical. Uh, If you're not uh, not a lifelong Presbyterian, uh, you probably are not familiar with the acronym TULIP, but many of us are. It's it's what's called the Five Points of Calvinism. It kind of explains they're doctrinal points that explain kind of what we believe about uh, several things about the Bible. But T starts starts the the acronym, and it it stands for total depravity. It means that the human heart, apart from God, is wicked. And evil and, uh, and is, and is a, a factory for all kinds of, of immoral behavior. And there are bad people out there. And the problem is, too, is that there are bad people in here and in here. Well problem, sometimes the problem with the church and I've said this before, and I'll say it again, we think all the bad stuff is going on outside. There's, a, there's plenty of bad stuff outside the church. Don't get me wrong. But there's plenty of bad stuff happening. Them, there's plenty of sin to go around in our own quarters as well. There are hateful impulses inside of us. Jesus told, told us that in Matthew chapter 5. He kind of turns up the, the holiness microscope. In verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. I, I kind of half joke about this. Everybody's angry these days. And a lot of people are packing. A lot of folks have a gun. <laughs> um, and the problem is, is that I'm angry too. Now, I, I used to, I was particularly, I think I was particularly angry young man. I've gotten, as I've gotten older, I've, I, Lord, I think has brought me some sanctification in this area. But there are times when I drive, if I don't say you fool, I'm saying something else, something a lot like it. When I get cut off in traffic, or when I think someone else has stomped on my rights, and particularly my rights, I think as Christians, we tend to fool ourselves in thinking that our anger is more righteous than it really is. I think our anger often is more self righteous than the righteousness that God asks for. James talks about this in his book, chapter one. He says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Dear friends, we need to let go of our anger. We need to recognize and confess that. Anger cannot possibly get, get us where we want to go. It'll fuel other sins if we let it. Total depravity is not theoretical. and It's also something that, that doesn't just go away when you receive Christ. It's something that uh, God over time, is going to give us victories over. Please be aware of it. Another one, mentioned earlier, good theology is misused to excuse bad behavior. Good theology is misused to excuse bad behavior. There was a story that came out in Christianity Today, I don't know if any of you saw it, the last week or two, about John MacArthur, a well-known pastor, theologian, in Southern California, in his church, Grace Community Church. And Christianity Today put together a story, they interviewed eight women who recounted how they and others members at Grace Community had been counseled to avoid reporting their husbands and fathers to authorities to accept their apologies and to continue to submit to them. So, eight women who were in abusive relationships, abusive situations, were told by, by, these, by these authorities in the church uh, to accept their apologies and, and to go back home. The victims were regularly quoted scriptures on forgiveness, trust, love, and submission. And were told to reconcile and return home, even in cases where they feared for their safety and their children's safety. That's a direct quote from the article. Your friend, now 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 that makes me angry. (laughs) Speaking of anger, that makes me angry. I was telling Carrie the other day, there is nothing weaker about a man than when he is abusive to a woman. It's just wrong. It's particularly infuriating because I'm a big believer in male leadership, in the church, and in, in the home. But it's, a, it's never, never, never appropriate for a man to do this. And particularly for the elders of the church to, to tell them to go back to a dangerous situation where the, more violence could occur is wrong. Is wrong. So male headship, please, does not equal despotism or abusive behavior. And so just a couple points here. For those of you who are, who are, who are, who are women or are single and would like to get married, perhaps someday, perhaps it's not anytime soon. Perhaps it is soon. Be wise in your choice of a husband. Choose a man who will love you and serve you. Whose leadership style is one of service and not despotism. That kind of leadership, any woman would I think would follow and love. Also be wise in, in the choices of a pastor or elders. And of course, we're, all, we're in this nomination season as a, as a church. So consider that. Consider men who are not angry, but instead go out of their way to be servants. Um, and I, I think I, I mentioned a few months ago that, that uh, I mentioned in a rather dark moment, I think, that there was probably gonna be some, some searches in the PCA that are gonna come out with abusive stories. I mean, if, if, if this is happening in John MacArthur's church, I cannot help but imagine this happening in churches all over our country and all over our denomination. Um, Lord, have mercy. And may the Lord give us, give us peace. Finally, this. In the midst of all that happened in, in, this, in this passage, every sin will be paid for. Every sin is paid for by someone's blood, by the sinner. Or by a substitute. So David's taking of, of this man's life is a reminder that every sin ultimately asks for payment. And we need to seek mercy as much as we need to seek justice. Do we want a courtroom? Do we really want a courtroom? Or do we want a cross? Do we want to have our life judged by by by, by the God that knows all things, sees all things? Or do we want to have mercy? given to us by, the, by his son on the cross. And isn't it interesting, doesn't Jesus own both those? Doesn't he own both the courtroom and the cross? He who came to redeem sinners by his blood is the same one who will come again to judge the unbelieving nations. That's what John tells us in Revelation chapter one. Verse five, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes on the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. The same Jesus says, who has freed us from our sins, wail, will, people will wail when they see him if they do not believe in him. He is both awesome and merciful. But dear friends, if you do not know Jesus this morning, put your, put your trust and faith in him only he can rescue you from him. The same judge who will rule all over all things. One of the things about the Old Testament is that it's unvarnished. It is that you get all the, the warts and everything. This was a difficult passage to read. But it is an awful judgment that is, that is given here in chapter four. There's even a worse judgment to, to come for those of us who do not know Christ. Put your faith and trust in him alone. Go to the cross rather than the courtroom. Seek his mercy because only he can provide justice. Let's pray as we come to the Lord's table. Father, thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you for sending your son first to live and die in our place. We thank you too, though, Lord, that he is coming again not only to make all things new, but also, Lord, to judge the nations, to bring justice. Lord, help us to seek both justice and mercy in this world, but especially for ourselves. Help us, Lord, to look for mercy. For, Lord, we know that only the mercy that you provide can rescue us from your justice. May this gospel ring forth from this, from this place and in our lives this week. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.